Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. Chris Ferdinandi. Hey there, it's the Vanilla JS guy. AJ O'Neill. Uh, yo, 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 it's the yo, yo, yo guy. <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. I guess I'm the DevRev guy. This week, we have a special guest, and that's Sarah Dayan. Did I get anywhere close? Yeah, this is close enough. Hi, uh, this is Sarah Dayan from Paris. Oh, there you go. I should have Frenched it up a little bit more. Hey, folks, I just want to let you know quickly about Netlify. Netlify is a really cool system for hosting what are traditionally known as static sites. However, the real benefit that I've been finding is that I don't have to mess with a back end. I can just set things up. I build the website out. I've been using a system called 11DJS, and you just deploy it. And then anything that you have that you want to do, you can do on the front end. So if you want to pull in some kind of database with Firebase or something else, if you want to collect form data, Netlify provides all kinds of services that make it easy to do all that stuff. If you're trying to do serverless, they have a really, really neat serverless setup that will allow you to deploy your websites without having to deploy a backend and it'll do some of the work for you. I just, I just love it. So if you're looking for a way that you can actually deploy a website that only has front-end technology in it, gives you all the tools that you typically need for the back-end without having to actually program the back-end, then give them a try. Go check them out at Netlify.com. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Sure. So I'm a front-end software engineer. Uh, I've been working in this industry for about 10 years now. And currently, I'm an engineer in Algolia uh, in Paris, which is a company that does uh, search as a service. And I'm mostly interested in JavaScript. I've done a lot of JavaScript and a lot of CSS. Nice. So Chris, uh, you said Chris invited you to come on the show as a guest. So maybe Chris should tell us why you're such a genius. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I am. Um, I, I, in particular, was really interested in learning um, a couple of things. Um, so for me, I probably would love to understand a little bit more about um, why dinero exists, why this isn't something that you would handle with either another library or some of the stuff that JavaScript gives you natively. And then for me, I think one of the really interesting pieces here um, is I just I personally think Sarah did a really awesome job putting together great documentation, which is something that's usually sorely lacking in a lot of open source stuff. Um, and also creating something that can be used in a bunch of different ways with a bunch of different um, setups. So if you like to just load stuff in a script tag like I do, it works. If you want to import it with an ES6 module, you can do that too. If you want to run it um, in a myriad of different ways, you have a lot of flexibility there. Um, and uh, maybe we could unpack the technology that allows that all to work too, if we have time. Sure. So uh, just to give a little bit of background, Dinero.js is a library that I made and published, uh, I think, a little bit less than a year ago. And the library is basically, uh, it, it lets you handle monetary value in JavaScript. So one way I like to introduce it is like, it's like Moment.js, uh, but for money. So it's uh, to money what uh, Moment.js is to dates. Uh, so the idea is that it lets you represent uh, monetary values as Im uh, immutable data structures, and it comes with many methods to parse them, manipulate them, test, transform, etc. formatting. And the reason why uh, I decided to create this library is because the first thing is that there is zero consensus right now when it comes to representing money in software development. Uh, 
you can, like in JavaScript, you have a date object, even though you can use moment to make it easier. But there is no way, there is not a, a monetary data structure that comes natively. Um, there is no mo- uh, money primitive. So it's basically up to you when you're making software to decide how you're going to handle it. And it, it results in every piece of software handling money differently. So I've decided to create this library. And if I can give a little bit of, uh, of the story of this library is that uh, before working at Algolia, I was working in a, in a SaaS company. And this job was basically maintain legacy software. We all know how fun this is. And we were handling... Um, Yay! That was a lot of fun. So this was the kind of code bases that you can spend a year on and you haven't seen everything. And this, this was an accounting software. And the backend was in PHP, frontend was in uh, HTML, CSS, and vanilla JavaScript. And everything money was handled by the backend. But at some point, we realized that there was this one piece of the software that was doing some manipulations of uh, monetary values in JavaScript and outputting some uh, computations to the client. And we started receiving some, uh, some issues, some bugs. And when I looked at the code, I realized that what was happening is that it was doing floating point math. So we can get a little bit deeper into that later. But basically, the idea to, to go quickly is that JavaScript does not have a way to natively represent decimal values. It has numbers, the, the number type, the number primitive, and it does a double precision floating point, which is basically a way to represent decimals in a binary system. And long story short, this is why you get uh, 0.1 plus 0.2 equals 0.300004. And the this means makes- the bank can keep track of my money that way. Yeah, right. <laughs> Every time I make a deposit, they can add a little extra. Oh, fine. Exactly. <laughs> and it may seem uh, trivial, but if you add up numbers and numbers and numbers, at some point you get the rounding really, really, really wrong. And the idea is that you had some computations on the front end, and then we send the values to the back end, and you had different a different total. So this was the problem. And this was the very beginning of me uh, trying to build something to, to fix that. I started a, a big refactor, and that was ultimately the early version of what is today the NeuroJS. I do have a question, probably like my biggest question. How do you go about handling different currencies? Okay, so the idea is that for dinero, I took a pattern that, that already existed. Uh, I researched it and I used uh, Martin Fowler's uh, money uh, pattern. So this is something that he came up with uh, quite some time ago. And basically, the structure in JavaScript, this is an object with an amount and a currency. If you want to add up euros with dollars, it's not going to let you do it. You have to convert it beforehand. And Dinero.js lets you convert before. There is a convert method. You can use your own API if you want to convert, but you cannot add up euros and dollars or you cannot add two currencies uh, that are different exactly like you would not do that in real life. Well said. I just love that you explained that money isn't just some number in the system because uh, I remember, I, was, I don't remember what system I was working on. It was for a client back within the last few years. But uh, I was working on this freelance system and yeah, 
I got in and I'm like, oh, money, that's easy, right? You just convert it to <laughs> and you do the math. And yeah, it's just a number until you have to actually use it. And then all of a sudden it's like, wait, 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 there's all this context around it that I, <laughs> I don't know if I can accurately represent. Yeah, it is a very, uh, so before I was at NPM, I was working at a fintech startup and we definitely had a lot of problems around this, but we were doing all of our calculations on the back end and the back end was predominantly PHP. So I guess I'm curious too, so this can work on the front end and the back end? So the, the library is made to work, so this is pure JavaScript, but it's made to work with anything. So you have a common JS format, you have an ES format, you have a UMD. So you can make it work in your Node app. You can make it work on the browser. It can work everywhere. And exactly as you said, the number one mistake that people do with money is to think this is just a number and you just add it up. But it's that it's, you don't have 10 money. It does not exist. You have $10. It's different from 10 euros. It's different from 10 bitcoins. Some, some currencies don't have uh, subunits, what we call cents. Some, some currencies don't have that, does not exist. Some currencies have more than uh, two numbers after, uh, after the comma. So there is no such thing as just a number when it comes to money. So the, there's also, in my experience, the, the context matters as far as what you're doing with it too, right? So if I'm just dealing, dealing with US companies and US dollars, I mean, I still have the complexity of the US banking system and, and you know certain aspects of the economy when I'm thinking about how people think about money, but I don't have to do any conversions and things like that. So I don't have any of that complexity. And then in other cases, you do have that complexity. So how do you wind up uh, figuring out which direction to go in or you know maybe you have different parts of dinero that you can pull in for different pieces, you know, how, how do you use this to make sure that you're covering your use cases without pulling in more than you need? So there is one convert method, which you don't have to use, but the thing is uh, everything else is something that you want to care about. For, I'll, I'll give you two examples. Floating point math, I was talking about that earlier. One of the problems that you have when you handle money with not, without a data structure that's made for it is that you will be tempted to say, okay, one equals $1 is to use the, the unit, like the, the major unit, which is actually a problem because you will end up using uh, floats and you will end up with the, the problem that I, I talked about earlier. The fact that in JavaScript, you don't have uh, a way to represent accurately decimal values like you would have in Java or in C Sharp. So the first thing is that if you want to use numbers, if you really want to use numbers, then you will have to only, and you, you said, okay, you only have to handle dollars. You could definitely use uh, numbers if you treat them as subunits. So instead of saying one equals $1, it would be a hundred equals $1 because it's a hundred cents because it's going to be a lot, a lot safer. Uh, but then you have all the things that come uh, with money. For example, when if I tell you, okay, here's $100, you need to split it into. It's easy, you divide it. Yeah, JavaScript can do that pretty easily. But with money, you don't really do any division. It does not really exist because with money, you cannot split a subunit if there is no other subunit below. So let's say you are building an accounting system and you want your customer to be able to split that, that invoice into, they can, 
they can ask their customer to pay 50% upfront and 50% uh, at the end. But if the total amount cannot be divided by two, how do you do that? So you do in the, in the Fowler pattern, you do what's called an allocation. It means that you do a modulo basically, and then you distribute the remain until there is only one, uh, one remaining and it goes on the first end. So this is called allocation and you can do it by hand or you can use a library that does it for you. Basically, the idea of dinero is abstracting all of that monetary logic and, and to let you do it easily without polluting your, your code base with code that's uh, incomprehensible. That's awesome. I got to be honest, I was impressed with your plugin already. I had no idea how terrible money was to work with behind the scenes before now. Like I was probably one of those developers you talk about who's like, oh, it's just numbers. You can just do math. Yeah, but, but even yeah, what she just talked about with the allocation, that's something that I hadn't really thought about. That is just intense. And that's something I didn't know about. Like I was really clueless about money before diving into that. And when I had this problem with pointing float math, I was like, okay, I'll just create. So the idea is that I wanted to create, a, a, how do you say that? Uh, some kind of object that could encapsulate it uh, so it's easier to, to, to deal with. But then I started studying. I, I started looking at uh, the works of people uh, who had thought about that before me. I, start, I started looking at what Martin Fowler did, and he did an incredible job, job about that. And I was like, okay, there is so many things that I don't know about. Uh, same with rounding, because at some point uh, in the library, you may need to round stuff, especially when you do conversions. Uh, there are so many ways to round money. And it's not because when we think about rounding, uh, depending on where you went to school and what uh, your teachers taught you, you might have an idea of, okay, I round up, I round down, I don't know. Uh, it depends, actually. There's something calls, uh, called banker's rounding, and that's not always up. It depends. And I don't remember exactly what the, what the rules are, but uh, they're all embedded in the library. And that's not something that's a given. It's not, uh, it's not the, same, the same rounding uh, way that JavaScript does when you try to round, uh, to round a float. So those are things that you have to keep in mind. And those are options that you need to give people. So depending on the law, like uh, for the US, you may have different rounding laws than if you are in Singapore or in Australia. And if you want several people, uh, everyone basically, to be able to use your library, then you need to give people options so it works for their use case. And that's something that requires studying. And that's when you realize that there is no such thing as just a number when it comes to money. You're making my head hurt. I'm glad there's this library. <laughs> Can you imagine like actually building this? <laughs> oh my gosh. No, that's so, why yeah, wonderful people I mean, like Sarah. It's one of those things you want to become, you end up becoming like an expert in. You dig in and you realize it's a lot deeper and you start mm -hmm. handling edge cases. But um, it also sounds kind of interesting, right? Like digging in and becoming just an expert in this one thing and getting this thing honed so well that you could release it to the public. I imagine, as Chris says, as first you think about this, you're like, oh, my head hurts. I just don't want to even, even want to deal about this. Once you start getting into it, you probably found, I, I assume you found it to be pretty engaging. Like, oh, I get to learn about this and I get to learn about this and look at this. And now how do you like craft good code? So 
that's something I would love to hear about is as crafting the library, right? There's so many edge cases. How uh, did you find a lot of opportunities to keep consistent central uh, centralized type code and reuse the same thing? Mm. Did you end up using like composition or inheritance uh, in order to handle like edge cases where things were similar, but not exactly the same based on, you know, various pieces or requirements? Uh, there are many, many things. Uh, so the first thing that you talked about is uh, becoming an expert in a domain that you start diving into for the sake of a library. And that's actually, so at the beginning, I was telling you about that, that, that job that I was at. And on the back end, they were used, so it was a, a PHP back end, and they were using uh, Money PHP, which I think uh, is an implementation of Money Ruby at the beginning. And money PHP was, uh, that's what I, I wanted to mimic at the beginning because I wanted basically to mirror in JavaScript the logic that was in the backend. And then I decided to, to go my own way. But money PHP, uh, which is maintained by uh, Matthias Verres, is, uh, so Matthias Verres is uh, uh, very invested in DDD, which is domain-driven development. And we had a conversation at some point because I wanted his guidance for some part of the narrow. And we had that really interesting conversation about DDD, which is basically when you do domain-driven development, that's really a great opportunity to learn about all those domains, all that domain logic uh, that has nothing to do with the subject that you're actually, like the, the development topic, but actually you're getting, like, let's say you're working on Moment.js. You're going to learn so many things that you can even imagine about, about time zones about uh, daylight savings, et cetera, things that we cannot even think about and that we don't want to think about. But actually, it's, it's so interesting once you get into it uh, because if you, like, if you like to do development and, and programming to solve problems, then it's an opportunity to solve problems. You're like, okay, there is nothing about what human ever did in, in life that is simple and doesn't have edge cases. And I'm trying to take that and to, transport and to transfer that into a program. So that's actually fascinating to do that. And to answer you on, so the, I think the second question was about, did I use inheritance or composition? I, I think that's that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. I'm a big fan of composition over inheritance. Um, I went for a very simple structure. Uh, I did a, a module pattern basically because uh, I think this is the simplest, uh, the simplest thing that you can go with because also it's allowed me to manage visibility, to have, uh, to have private members uh, in Dinero uh, to make it easily immutable. And I decided to, co to compose. So in the, Dinero, uh, the Dinero library, I have the, uh, the main Dinero object and then I have plenty of services. I have a calculator that I use in many places. Uh, I have uh, a formatter. Uh, I have a currency converter. So I, I have all those little services that I compose to create the final library. How would you say, how would you rate the complexity overall of the uh, library uh, as far as like the internal code goes, right? Like was it, extremely complex or did it end up being, even though the domain is comp complex and has a lot to it, did you find that it was, the implementation was simpler than you thought it would be given everything you put into it? Or did, did, was it, is it full of like all these edge cases? Code-wise, I think it's extremely simple. 
I think some if someone has a little bit of uh, JavaScript experience and they look at the code base, they won't be like, oh, this is so complex, I don't understand a thing. Uh, I think it's really not that like uh, it's not that smart of, of code. It's it's really extremely simple. The domain is much more complex, but the implementation is easy. You have to know the language. You have to know the the problems that come with the language. Uh, it's not the same writing that library in C sharp than writing it in JavaScript. Definitely, but the code is simple. It's a lot of operations, and then it's making sure that, making sure that things remain as simple as possible. But uh, yeah, I, I would definitely say that it is extremely simple code with much complex domain. So are you taking, are there they're like uh, external contributors? It's, it's open source, right? Yes. So right now I've, uh, I have some, some people who contributed to it, not many, but I'm always open to, to other contributions, especially because I'm preparing the V2. Uh, I want, there are many things that I want to do with this library and I cannot do it alone. Uh, first, because I don't have either the time, the energy, the resource, and also because I don't know everything. Uh, for example, I want to uh, support TypeScript, but I don't know TypeScript myself. And I can either start learning it and implement it later or have some people help with it. Gotcha. So um, setting aside the technical stuff just for a sec... I remember one of the things I, I noticed when you first published this, Sarah, was just how thorough and detailed and also like, here's how you quickly get started for beginners. Your documentation was um, in a way that's really uncommon with like, this looks like a professional supported by like a many person team kind of project type thing. And it's something that you had initially, you know, mostly done on your own. So how are you... How are you handling this? So is this something you're auto-generating using like JS doc? Are you, um, are you kind of handwriting all this stuff? What's, um, like, what's your approach here? And what sort of role do you feel, or how important do you think documentation is to a pro- or an open source project? Um, two questions. So I actually, I'd, I'd probably love to just focus on, and just as someone who does a lot of open source work, like maintaining and creating good docs is one of the hardest parts of the whole thing for me. Um, and I'd be curious to hear how you did this because this is some of the best documentation I've ever seen. Well, first off, thank you. I believe that documentation is tremendously important. Uh, even if, if you just want your library or project to ever be adopted, you have to have great docs. That's, that's a given. But I'm a self-taught engineer. So not having great documentation is definitely something that when, especially when I was younger and less experienced, was a big hindrance. So you can spot documentation that's generated uh, because the approach is really not user-friendly. It's factual. You see everything, but you cannot understand anything. And (laughs) you feel... Like there are so many great libraries out there that I can use because I have more experience now. But if I was younger, it would make me feel dumb because I could not understand anything that's on the screen. Uh, So that's something that I don't like. I don't like the idea of, I think this is a way of uh, gatekeeping, not providing good documentation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like the idea of 
the web and more generally programming to be for everybody, just like the internet. And so I think this is tremendously important. I have a big background in blogging, so I love writing. I really love writing. I love spending time making sure that things are understandable. And this is why in the documentation of Denaro, you have a quick start. It's why, uh, this is why for every method, you have a little paragraph that explains it. This is generated documentation in the sense that, yes, I use JSDoc. Everything is either in the source code or in uh, the, the readme, but I cobbled my own template together to make sure that it doesn't look like a generated documentation. For the future now, I think I've reached the limits of having docs right mm-hmm. in the source code. And next, I'm going to remove, I'm going to keep the bare minimum because I think it's still really helpful to have uh, annotations in the source code. Some people like to learn by looking at the source code. So why would I remove anything that would help them? But what I'm going to remove is everything that's more written. Uh, I'm going to keep only short descriptions and move that to a project that will be the narrow documentation. Yeah, I'm just noticing in the source code now, you even have like examples embedded above each method, which is, um, I've been told I over-document. but this is um, this is incredible. Like, if I wanted to learn by looking at the source code, this is um, this is so much better than anything I've ever done. Th- th- this is not really like over documenting is never a problem. That's that, that's such a, a cool problem to have. If someone <laughs> over documents, then overlook the part that you don't need. Yeah. So to to be totally transparent, uh, right now at my at my job at Algolia, I'm an engineer in the documentation squad, and that's not. Random. I didn't pick that randomly. It's because I really believe in great documentation. And Mm -hmm. I think the documentation of Denaro can be even better. Uh, I'm happy that it's helpful right now, but it could be even better, which is why I have projects for it, which is why I want to keep it separate from the source code, because right now this is limiting in terms of what I can do. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I, I really believe in the fact that Everyone is different. Everyone has a different way of learning. So if people want to look at the source code, make the source code readable, have some annotations in it. Some people want videos, let's do videos. Some people want written content, let's do written content. Some people like tutorials. Uh, Some people like uh, examples. Some people just want to see the exhaustive uh, list of methods. Some people want to see use cases and understand how... For each use case, you may apply this or this or that. So if you want to do great docs, and I'm not there yet with, with this project, but if you want to do great docs, you have to understand that people learn differently with different medium and they have different level of expertise. If you're only writing your docs for experts, you're likely not going to attract that many people because... Uh, At some point, experts tend to read a lot less documentation. And I would say if you make something as easy as possible, it's going to appeal to everyone. Because even if you're the best of the best in any domain or language, everyone likes something that's easy to read, easy to digest. One thing that I want to just throw out there, and it, it kind of occurred to me while you were talking, Sarah, about 
the problems that you have with documentation. And the big thing, especially with the generated documentation, is that we call it documentation, right? And so you have an explanation of what each method or function does. And so it's documented. The problem is, is there's no guidance. And so I would love to see more, you know, guides, which I think is more in the vein of what you've done, you know, instead of documentation. Yes, I definitely agree, especially because it's never been easier to test out a library, uh, especially in JavaScript. Mm -hmm. You have NPM, you can do a quick search, you install something, you try it out. In five minutes, if you're not convinced, it goes out in the trash. So either you have documentation where you only document every method and that's it, or you have something that allows me in five minutes to see if the library is suited for me. There is so much choice. Like, let's say you want to do, I don't know, and it could be anything. You want to transform uh, exadecimal colors into RGB. There might be a thousand libraries, even more right now, that do that. But before you find the one that's exactly the size that you want and does exactly what you want uh, and is going to scale with your project, you might try a bunch. Documentation is also what allows you to avoid uh, downloading and removing, etc. So I think having quick guides, having ways to get people into it without investing too much time reading through advanced stuff uh, is also a way to respect people's time. Yeah, this is one area, I know I'm not a big framework guy, but this is one area where I think Vue really like, really crushes it. Like they have, they have their quick start guide, almost everything has a link to um, like a, this site where you can just literally like play with stuff in real time without even having to download anything. Um, just super, super low friction startup kind of things. And I would love to see more projects lower the bar that much for getting started. Um, so sorry, I, honestly, thanks for all your work there with Dinero on that. Really cool stuff. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So... If you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Okay, cool. So the... um. The other thing you mentioned, Sarah, was just about all the different ways and places you can run this. Um, you know, so as an ES6 module, UMD, CommonJS, um, run on a node server if you want. How do you just kind of logistically make that happen? So how do you, what's the process like for creating something that can run in that many different places? So right now, the library is uh, an ES module. What you get when you use the source is an ES module. And the way that I export that many different formats 
is by using Rollup.js, which is the, a bundler that is perfectly suited for libraries. So what it does is that it takes an ES module, that's what it wants at the beginning, and it can output it in any format. So right now with Denaro, I have I output uh, ES6, uh, UMD, AMD, and CommonJS. Basically, that's my process. This is a small library with a really simple API, and I have my uh, build.js process that runs every time I do npm build, and that's it. That's all I have. It's ES module, which I like because this is native, and then it outputs anything that I want. And I really love the idea of providing different versions I also have polyfill versions for people using older uh, environments. But right now, yeah, this is what I have. So for the polyfill, I use Babel and uh, CoreJS to polyfill uh, things like, uh, I don't know, all, all the new array, ES6 array methods. But this is my process. And the reason why I went with ES modules uh, is simple. Basically, I had... The, a choice between UMD, AMD, CommonJS, and ES modules. And what I wanted is to provide as many builds as possible for as many people as possible, for as many environment as possible, but keep my source clean. I didn't want, I didn't want to add something that was not necessary to the source that would make it harder to read and that would not be scalable. And... Before, not that long ago, we did not have a module system in JavaScript. So we did UMD, which still works today and is really useful. Uh, but UMD and AMD are, they're not module systems. They're, they're, they're circumventing the problem and offering a way to have modules, but they are not meant to be definitive. They're, they're not meant to be permanent. Um, then you have CommonJS, and CommonJS is great. It's native to Node, but its usage in, in the browser is also a way to circumvent the fact that we didn't have modules. But now we have ES modules. And the great thing about ES modules is that, first, they're native. If your environment is supporting ES6, you can use them right away in the browser. Uh, they have a really terse syntax, uh, really small keeps the, the source lightweight, extremely easy to read. Uh, another one is that they can be statically analyzed, so they can be tree-shaken if you have a tool that does that. And it's really easy to, to use that with Rollup.js, which is what I decided to use them with. Awesome. Thank you so much. I, for some reason, had Webpack in my head. Um, I've heard great things about Rollup, too, but um, nice. So I, I didn't use Webpack because... Webpack is not really, I don't think uh, Webpack is suited for libraries. Um, it can do exactly the same thing as Rollup does. But if you look at the output of, like, let's say I write, you, you take the narrow and you write the code in Webpack to transform it into a UMD, you do the same as Rollup. You're going to end up with a lot more code with Webpack than with Rollup because Webpack was, it can, do, it can do it, but it was really meant for larger scale apps. It's really better for when you want to make a front-end app, when you need to have a development server uh, 
and stuff like that. While Rollup is really made to for libraries and to output very small amount of code, the least amount of code as possible. Awesome. Yeah, so that's all I have. I don't know if anybody else has anything they wanted to pick out with this one. I'm just curious um, if you know of anyone else that's using it. Using Denaro or Rollup.js? Yeah. Denaro. So I looked at NPM recently to see if I had uh, people depending on that. I've, um, I think it's maybe like two or three people, so it's not that much. Mm-hmm. But I've gotten, I've read an article from someone who recently installed it in their project and extended it and seemed really happy with it. So I think it's the, it's the same with a lot of projects. The number of stars don't mean adoption. So that's not a metric that we should give too much, uh, too much credit to. But I've seen that it started being used. At least, at least some people have it in their package.json. And I think that's great. But to be honest, uh, I'm really just happy that it's out there, that it helps people even understand how to handle money. I, I have a blast maintaining the library. I have a blast writing articles about it. I think it's a great opportunity to teach more about this specific domain, but also about JavaScript. The, the library is immutable. There is many reasons for that, but it's a great way to teach immutability and why it matters. It's a great way to talk about visibility in JavaScript, how to do it, why it matters, why do it, why not do it. There are many, many things that can come out of it. And I'm, I'm a teacher at heart. So any opportunity to teach something and to share something with people uh, I take it. One of the things I wanted to ask is as you got into the just the domain of dealing with currency and stuff, I know that you mentioned a few interesting things at the beginning, but was there like any of these like war stories of like discovering like, oh my gosh, this weird currency works this way or, you know, unique stuff like that? Any any interesting stories to tell? <laughs> yes, I have. So um so let me let me just find the, the ducks because I talk about it at some point. Uh, but yeah, so the first thing is that I used to have a method that's called has sense that tells you if your Denara object is representing an amount that has sense. But actually, sense is a very Western um, word. So you have sense in euros, you have sense in dollars, but it doesn't mean anything in other currencies. And thinking that's, that sense is is a word that designates subunits for everyone is wrong and it's a very Western-centric vision. So this is why I deprecated this method and created the has subunits method instead uh, because because this this qualifies much more. I have a few open issues about things, about currencies. So right now, let me just make sure that I, I find the right piece. Uh, so right now, I only support uh, ISO 4270 uh, currency code because I'm using the, the native uh, two formats, the number two format formatting method. And that's what it takes. Basically, it's, it takes only this, uh, those currencies. So there are some currencies that let me just check in the issues. In some currencies, you have... Three like subunits are expressed in three digits. 
for example, in Iraqi dinars, a thousand is one Iraqi dinars. So where you would think, okay, a hundred equals one. It's not actually the case. So this is something that you have to to think about. And that's something that I want to get better at. I want to handle it better in V2 because right. Right, right, right now, the only way that you can circumvent it is by using the precision. Uh, I, I, I added a new property that's called precision to say, okay, I want my uh, monetary value to be that precise. But mm-hmm. that's actually not the best way of doing it. So one idea that I have is that I would actually want to keep a JSON or a JavaScript object with all the ISO 4270 currencies. And if you use a specific currency in your dinner object, it's going to detect uh, how many uh, subunits you have in one major unit, things mm-hmm. like that. But that, that's something I didn't know. And that's something you don't know until you start digging into it, uh, until people from all around the world start to take interest in what you did and talk to you about it. And I think this is one of the greatest things about open source is that I never get to talk with Iraqi people in my everyday life, which is a shame. And there, I just learned something about Iraqi dinars. This is fascinating. I want to know more. And now I'm aware that in this situation, you handle money differently. If you're working with yens, Uh, I think this is with yens, you don't have subunits. It does not exist or it doesn't work anymore. Uh, Hmm. I'm not sure it's with yens, but there are many currencies where you don't have subunits in some other currency. There are some some currencies, but I don't handle them right now. They don't use the decimal system. There are many, many things like that, many edge cases like that, that I didn't think about uh, that, and I'm sure there are so many things that are even beyond me that I don't even think of right now. Right. I Another, an interesting sorry. thing that I encountered. I wonder if you've seen anything like this, but in the uh, 90s, I was in Belarus and Belarus's financial system was going through a lot of upheaval. And the, the inflation was so crazy that they started counting the bills that they, the one bills, at, what do they do? They stopped producing anything less than 100 and then they started printing new one bills and the ones would actually be a hundred. And I guess when you're talking about the electronic currency, maybe that doesn't affect it. But I wonder if, you've, if you see that, you know, like various uh, social and political upheavals that go on and how it affects the currency system, if that means that like all of a sudden your library has to respond to what's going on. Absolutely. Um, so it's either in the Chinese or uh, Japanese currency. Uh, I don't remember which, but... There is one that they have subunits, but they don't use it anymore, for example, because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, it, mm-hmm. it has virtually no value. Uh, so I think at some point you have to mitigate. Uh, you need to be as flexible as possible to welcome many use cases and be aware. If you're working with money, this is something that always moves, always changes. It's not the same as some other domains that are pretty much set in stone. So if you're working with a domain that's bound to change, you need to be flexible and you need to build a system that allows for that flexibility. But at some point you cannot go, you you cannot accommodate everything and everyone. So you also have to make choices. 
right now, I only cater for currencies using the decimal system. It's not, it may not be everyone, but it's still a hell of a bunch of people. So I don't think this is a problem that to cater to everyone, but it has to make sense. It has to make sense with the domain that you're, you're handling. There's, a, there's actually another one, another limitation that you have uh, in that specific, it's not only specific to JavaScript, but it's one of the, of the limitations that you have is that um, in JavaScript, you cannot go over a certain amount that the max, the max safe integer that you can have mm-hmm. keeps you from representing values that are above that. So this is one of the big topics for me right now. You have libraries like bigint.js and others that handle that. My take from the beginning has to, I, I've decided to exclude every third-party library uh, other than dev dependencies. I decided not to include any third-party dependency in the project for several reasons. But the first one and the main one is that when you download a library to handle monetary values, you expect it to be as small as possible. This is not something that you expect to be huge. This is something that you want. It's like you're adding a new primitive. You don't want it to come with all bells and whistles. And that's been my, my struggle, but I've, I really want to keep it dependency-free as much as possible. So using a library for now is a no-go for me. There is a draft, I think, right now in uh, TC, uh, TC39 for, um, for support of big integers in JavaScript, but I don't know if it's going to become a standard soon enough. That's something I'm keeping an eye for. So it looks like bigins have landed in JavaScript, like they're available in Chrome and in Node, but there is not a way to um, convert between uh, typed arrays or hexadecimal or other storage formats. So it's like basically you either have to already have the string as decimal or you can produce the string as decimal but you can't, there's no intermediaries right now. And that is what is tough about it. They like built the island, but not the bridge. Okay. The, yeah, the thing also is that I still want it to be polyfillable. So I, I don't mind waiting until something is more mature or more ready. The max safe integer is high. Of course, it, if you're, let's say you want to use the narrow to represent monetary values that are huge, let's say you work uh, with stock market, uh, you're building a stock stock market app or whatever. This is going to be a limitation, definitely. But this is a decision that I've taken for now is to make sure that anything that I integrate into the library is something that I can safely that can be safely used, backwards compatible, and De- as much dependency free as possible. Yeah, there's there is a way to kind of polyfill it, but if you, I, and maybe a nice pattern would be if the if somebody uses the the big end polyfill that it becomes available, but if not, then it isn't that way. It's dependency free, and somebody can choose to include the dependency and get the features. 
might might be a way to go. I'm I'm struggling with one of the same problems with something that I'm doing with a, a crypto library. <laughs> yeah, I, at some point, and this is a project that I have in my GitHub right now. Uh, I was thinking about adding some kind of interface that would allow people to basically install any big big int library that they want and to map like all the calculators calculator methods to the dinero one and if you use that then uh, i would reroute to the method of your big int library instead of the one of dineros i'm not 100% convinced with it right now or i would have to make it something separate because i do not want to add too much complexity and to pollute uh, the code base with something that I would have no choice but go up a major version to get rid of. I still want to keep developer experience great and avoid changing the API too much, especially for those kinds of reasons. So for now, I'm not really sold on making it, um, make it making this solution being the core of the narrow, but it's still on the table. I haven't decided yet. Sounds like a good approach to me. Do you have any features you're looking to add to Dinero? So in terms of feature, I think this is, for now, I think it's pretty good. I want to do a better job at, so at detecting currency. Uh, I would like to be able, when you say that you use dollars to detect, okay, you need two, you need two, um, two digits. If you're yeah. using a racket dinars, I would like to do that as well. It's, it would be mostly, if I'm thinking of improving it, I want to improve, I think, the way it's built. So right now, the approach I've taken is to use a module pattern. So I'm doing a single export of an object, which is nice because it gives you a nice chainable API. But the problem is the chainable API is that you cannot shake it. So... It's not that big of a problem right now because the library is fairly small. If you're, if you're having Dinero in your code base and you're having performance issues, I can 99% guarantee that this is not Dinero that you should be looking at. But that being said, I like the idea of giving freedom and flexibility. So I'm thinking of providing two ways, just like Lodash did. Lodash did the hyper-modularized version and they still have the chain, uh, the chain method that allows you to have all the methods. So if you want to import all the methods one by one so you can tree shake, you can use the hyper-modularized version. If you don't care about that, and if you want great DX and chainability, you have that option too. So that's something I have in mind that I would like to, to improve on. I also want to provide better support for uh, type libraries. So TypeScript or Flow, I would like to, to provide typings uh, for that. I don't want yet to write the code base of Dinero in TypeScript, but this is something that I definitely want to support. And finally, I would say work on the documentation. Working at Angolia and the Docs uh, team has helped me realize what gap there is between good docs and great docs. I thought I knew what great docs were and actually there are so many things that one can do to help people. So this is something that I would like to focus on as well, making sure that 
it's crystal clear what this library does and how to how to use it. Many times when I talk to people and I tell them, yeah, Dinero, it's a data structure, monetary data structure for in JavaScript. They look at me like, huh, what? What is that? And I have to say, okay, it's like moment, but for money. And they're like, oh, okay, I get it. So definitely there's something that's not yet easy to understand for everyone. And that's my job to clarify it. So I would say there is work as well on the engineering side, but also on the DevRel side. And I think both are equally important, especially if you want your library to have any kind of adoption. I think it's interesting too, you're talking about adoption. I think a lot of people get into situations where they essentially expect that, you know, they can just build it and people will show up. And instead you're thinking about, okay, you know, what's it going to take to get people to use this and get real um, utility out of it. And I, I, I really admire that. Besides the good documentation, do you have other forms of outreach and DevRel and things like that going on to kind of get the word out? So right now, the one thing that I do is blog. I, I love to, to blog about front end, but whenever I think of one aspect that I can talk about uh, and that would help me promote the narrow, I'll do it and I'll write about it. I'm super active on Twitter. I try to go at conferences, even if I cannot go everywhere. But I would say that I don't, I don't have an obsession with the library being adopted. What I mean is, yes, I'm willing to do the work, but ultimately what I want is to help. I did not do the library at the beginning to, for it to become popular. And of course, it's really nice to see that people like it. But at the very beginning, I did it to solve a problem. And I think every project that ever worked first started by solving a problem. You don't build a product, you solve a problem. And eventually it becomes a product that people use and love, etc. But I think if you're too obsessed with making something popular, you're probably going to neglect the, the most important, which is solving problems and making sure it helps people. And you're going to spend your entire time on communication and DevRel which is important. I'm, I'm having a logo made for it. Uh, I'm working on new documentation. But ultimately, what I want to spend, like all the time that I allocate to this library, I want at least 80 or 90% to be on bettering the source code and making sure that it helps people, answering the, the issues, making sure that people who don't know how to use that, that method or had an issue with this other thing, have the clarification that they need. This is the most important. Closing issues, I think, is more important than having the, like, talking about it. Of course, at some point when you're React, you, you cannot solve every issue and, and have everything always taken care of in timely manner. And you're going to maybe have people spend more time on promoting it. But for a library at this, at this size, it's a one-person thing right now. I think the, the best thing for me to do as, as an engineer, as a problem solver, as, as someone who wants to basically help, 
is to focus on making it better. The flip side of this is when things get popular, you start getting a lot more support requests and tickets and issues. And then most people are very, very polite, but then there's always kind of the like, um, like the demanding and argumentative side of open source maintenance too. So um, yeah, I totally understand you about not, not having making it popular be a goal, just trying to solve user problems. That's how all of, ironically, all of my most popular open source stuff started out. I think that's true for most folks. Yes, and the the problem with open source is that, is that it can eat up your time extremely fast. There was a good talk and even article from one of the creators of Bootstrap not that long ago about that, about how it basically ate up his entire life. And I think I didn't experience that kind of popularity with any project, but it's not hard to imagine how it can eat up your life. And at some point you, you may wonder, okay, why am I spending that much time on something that doesn't even bring me income or anything? Because at some point you spend some time on something. If you listen to every request, if you look at every issue, if you listen to everyone who consumes open source, you would spend your entire life on your, on your uh, open source libraries, which is not something that you can do because one's got to eat. So doing open source comes with responsibilities. That's a given. If you put something out, that's also, I feel that there's a blurred line, but that's also something that you decide to support or to maintain. And if you don't, well, nobody's going to knock at your door and tell you that you should do it but that's also going to possibly affect your um, reputation. On the flip side, doing open source can help you land a job. During my, my interview process at Algolia, I had to do a presentation. I did a presentation on Dinero.js. So this was a great opportunity for me to show skills, to show problem-solving skills, etc. So there is always something that you can get from anything you do, even if it does not bring you money or, or anything else. Then I feel like it can be difficult to have your work out there in any, in any way. If you do video, if you do whatever, it's going to be tough because people are extremely entitled. They can, be, they can act like jerks. It can be my article on my first article that I published on Dinero made it to the front page of Hacker News. People tore me apart on that on that uh, on that Hacker News page. That's that's okay. It comes with the territory. At some point, you also need to filter out things and learn to just stop listening. This is only the internet. This is only a library. My life does not depend on it. Nobody nobody's life depends on it. It's okay. And at some point, you may even see it as just a game and real life is different from that. You have thicker skin than I do. <laughs> uh, that's, that's what I get for being a, a woman on the internet, I guess. Ah, uh, uh, ma'am. But the, actually, that's not easy. Like when you get those, those nasty comments the first time they get to you, you read them and you're like, oh, I should answer or I should fix that thing, or et cetera. And at some point you're like, yeah, whatever. I'll just have my dinner with my friends. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I'm going to push this into picks. But before we do that, you mentioned that you blog. So where do people find your blog posts? 
I'm, I'm assuming you're also on GitHub and Twitter. Yeah. You can find me online on frontstuff.io. Uh, on Twitter, I'm Sarah.Diane, I think. And on GitHub, I'm Sarah Diane. So S A R A H D A Y A N. But you can find me. You just type that into Google, you'll find me. Awesome. Hey guys, let me tell you about Clubhouse. I swear, I've used every project management software there is out there, and I hated project management software. Now I have Clubhouse. Overall, it's simple and straightforward to use, but it has enough of the integrations and power features you need to get the job done without getting confusing. This means that I can use it and the non-technical members of my team can figure out what they need from it. It also makes it easy for me to zoom out and see what's going on overall before zooming back in and specifying more work that needs to be done or picking the next task for me to tackle. They integrate with all the systems that you'd expect and have a REST API for, well, the rest. If you go to HTTPS clubhouse.io slash JSJabber, you can get two months free instead of the standard 14-day trial for any team size. Once again, that's HTTPS clubhouse.io slash JSJabber. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. So picks are things to recommend, right? Yep. All right. So this may sound like I'm promoting my own company, but still, anyway, I'll do it anyway. So I work at Algolia. We do... Uh, search as a service. You probably already used Algolia if you went on any documentation website lately. Uh, we power many documentation websites uh, search bar. So if you are an open source developer and you have any product out there with great documentation, you can get search for free. You can get the power of, uh, of Algolia for free with a project that we call DocSearch. You subscribe to DocSearch, you get a JavaScript snippet to put on your website, which is going to provide you with a search bar. We scrape your website every, every 24 hour and you get search for free on your website. Awesome. Uh, AJ, do you have some picks for us? Yes, Chuck, I do. So I'm going to pick three things today. The first of which is the legendary profile by the, the modern jazz quartet. It's not very modern. In fact, it's quite old. And there are still a few copies of the vinyl from the olden days, not new hip vinyl, uh, left over. Um, it is an album that helped me to discover my love of jazz, although it's not something I listen to very commonly. It is something that I, I quite enjoy, and, and I highly recommend that album. Another thing I'm going to pick is a, the webcam cover by Decreate. And the problem that you have if you have a Mac is that there are three things where your webcam is. There's the webcam, there's the ambient light slash IR sensor, and there is the LED that indicates that the webcam is on or not. And most of these webcam dilios are meant to, to surround the webcam hole and you slide open or close but that also blocks out your ambient light sensor and your LED. So this one is more wide and it's still very thin, so it'll fit there and your, your MacBook can close no problem. Um, and you can keep it half open so that your ambient light sensor still works and your webcam can be covered. I went through a whole bunch of listings on Amazon and that was the one that I found that seemed to, to do the right job. And then the last thing I'm going to pick is, now this was a pick from years ago that I'm, I'm pretty sure somebody on the show picked this. 
And I've kept it in my back pocket in one of my to read slash to listen to lists. And it finally met its turn. So How Music Works by David Byrne is a fascinating 360 degree view that covers both like the humanities aspect, the economical aspect, and then the creative aspect of music. So it just goes end to end and it, and it goes through perhaps other aspects than the ones I enumerated there, but it, it's a very thorough, uh, well written, and I like the voice of the person reading it. So it's easy to listen to book about um, music. And I, I just highly recommend it. Nice. Chris, what are your picks? Hey, three for me this week. Um, so the first, Tommy Hodgins has been putting out um, for this month a series of really interesting um, little like code snippets and tutorials on how you can, um, uh, polyfill is not the right word, but um, basically extend CSS with missing features using um, just a little bit of vanilla JS. So um, this is not a CSS and JavaScript thing, but basically you can write native CSS, but then drop in a little JavaScript to add features that don't exist. Like for example, um, being able to use a parent node selector on an element. Um, so, you know, find this element and then style its parent or find the closest matching parent that has a class or an ID or something, just like you could in JavaScript, but might be missing from CSS. And so um, he's doing them all month, really, really cool series on um, how you can kind of add stuff that doesn't exist yet, which is a little bit of code, which I thought was pretty neat. Um, the second in the non-developer world, um, I wanted to recommend a YouTube channel that I've been absolutely obsessed with for a while now. Um, it's the YouTube channel of Tom Scott. He just travels all over the place and spends somewhere between two and five minutes talking about really, really cool stuff. Um, like recently he did a video on um, what used to be um, this giant underground oil reserve container um, in Scotland back in World War II and is now um, the greatest echo chamber in the world just as a function of how it ended up being built. And he crawled into this unbelievably tiny space to show you how it works. And just all sorts of really cool stuff like that. So if you're a geek who likes history and science and all sorts of fun stuff like that, like I am, um, you will probably find this channel interesting. And uh, then the last one, um, I absolutely love this Hulu original TV show called Future Man. Um, and I just found out season two is finally coming back. I wasn't sure if they were going to renew it or not, but they did. Um, so I'm super excited about that. If you haven't ever seen the show, now is the perfect time to go binge on season one because season two comes out sometime in January, which is, I think, I hope, when around this episode is going to come out. Um, and if not, I'm totally off the mark. And that's it for me. Nice. I'm always looking for new TV shows. Yeah, I've been told that it's potentially a little bro-y. Um, I didn't realize this until actually just last week, but it was produced by, um, by Seth Rogen. Um, but it's... Uh, um, it's got the dude who played, and I'm going to betray my like super geekness here. But so um, if you've ever seen the Hunger Games movies, it's um, the lead actor is the guy who played Peter in those, or Peter, I forget his name. It's like a super irreverent sci-fi time travel kind of thing that pokes fun at a lot of the 80s time travel kind of cliches or just things that would typically happen in those. Um, it's funny. It's dramatic at times. Um, I don't know. I really like it. I, I hope you all do too. All right. Amy, what are your picks? 
I'm going to go with, since we were talking at the beginning of the episode about legacy code bases, um, I've been saving this up because it was very much the position I was in before. And it's just a really long, very, very, very long Hacker News thread um, on when you have inherited a code base that really no one understands and people's different approaches to it. So um, I thought a lot of the advice in here was pretty valuable and that's going to be it for me today. Awesome. Uh, Joe, what are your picks? All right. So I got two picks today. The first one is a new TV show I've been watching that's really cool. Uh, it's, I think, in its second or third season. So I hadn't even heard about it before, but a friend of mine told me about it. And it's called Timeless. So it's like a time travel show about these people that are running around rescuing time or something. I don't know. Uh, I've only watched <laughs> awesome. the first episode, but it's really cool. One of those shows has like a mystery. You, you start off, you think you understand it, and then things get deeper and more in-depth. And he's like, oh, this is cool. So... Um, I'm going to definitely pick Timeless. Watch the first episode and super entranced by it. And my second, again, this is, this is going to be like uh, my uh, material consumption picks. So I'm only picking material to consume today. And that is, the second one is uh, Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, read by none other than Jean-Luc Picard. Uh, uh, Patrick Stewart. Yeah. So it's really cool if you've never actually read, if you've only saw the, seen the play, I hate the plays. I'm so tired of seeing them at Christmas time. My kids, you know, every year in five of them, and I'm tired of that. But the book is actually really good, especially when it's read by somebody who really knows how to read it. It's like an amazingly well-written book. So that's my second and final pick. Very nice. Um, I'm going to jump in with a few picks. So I decided for a number of reasons uh, to run a marathon in 2019. And the marathon on, that I'm looking at running, uh, obviously I haven't signed up yet because the registration isn't open, is the St. George, Utah Marathon. And yeah, the variety of reasons include it's not that far away. And uh, my dad ran it when I was a kid and you know we lost him this year and it's just been kind of a way to connect with him. So anyway, um, yeah, I kind of got pressured a little bit because I was thinking about it. And uh, basically my friend John Sanmez told me to to either, you know, do it or, <laughs> you know, make a decision. So I made a decision. I hired a running coach and, uh, yeah, I've also, uh, I bought this Garmin watch and I'm pretty happy with it. It's the Garmin forerunner two, three, five. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a smart watch. Um, it doesn't have all the features. I had a pebble watch before. It's not quite as fully featured as that, but there are still a bunch of apps and a bunch of watch faces and stuff you can put on it. So I've been kind of having fun playing with that. Um, but yeah, the trainer's been awesome as well. I've, I've really, really been in, enjoying um, kind of the idea of getting out there and running a marathon. And having a coach has really been helpful too. So yeah, those are my picks. And I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up. Sarah, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I have one correction to make to a statement that I made earlier. I lied about big ants. They do support hexadecimal. <sighs> but it's not documented on the Mozilla developer page. But if you put in, quote, zero X, followed by a hexadecimal string, end quote, as uh, the argument to bigint, it will convert it to bigint. Just wanted, I want people to know that. Hopefully that can get spliced in or covered over my, my falsehood lies. Yeah, we can do that. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this one up and we will be back next week awesome bye 
Welcome. Thanks for coming everyone. on the show, sir. Bye. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Peace. <laughs> Cheers, everyone. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.